episode of the Qadawiyin podcast. This is your host, Sara, and I am joined today by my three co-hosts, Aisha A, Aisha H, and Amina, who has joined us recently, alhamdulillah. And today we're actually welcomed, we're joined by um, a very special guest. We're happy to have Sheikha Aisha Wazwaz here with us. Um, Sheikha Aisha, how are you doing? Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah, and jazakumullah khairan for inviting me. And I'm. it was really my pleasure, and it still is my pleasure to actually see young women um, taking the lead to do uh, major and discuss major issues and major topics um, during our times and and actually be courageous and brave enough to discuss these matters. Alhamdulillah. And we ask that Allah gives us tawfiq and um, yeah, shedding the like light on the truth about these matters, inshallah. Um, and I, I do want to like just briefly read a bit about um, Sheikha Aisha's background for those who don't know her. Um, but she's a researcher, author, and an Islamic studies lecturer and a chaplain at St. Catherine University. Um, and she was formerly a lecturer at the Islamic University of Minnesota. Um, she holds a BA in Islamic jurisprudence or fiqh um, and an MA degree in contemporary Islamic studies from Al-Quds University. And she has a PhD in Islamic studies from Jinan University in Lebanon. And she's the founder and CEO of Gems of Light, an institute dedicated to educating Muslim women in the Islamic tradition. Um, and before we get into the discussion, I do want to give some um, just like a brief background about like what we want to talk about today. Um, but we are talking about, um, you know, more broadly, the situation in Palestine in, in Palestine today, um, but more specifically as it relates to um, us as Muslims and what our relationship is, you know, as an, a, an entire ummah to this issue and to and what that teaches us about um, Islamic politics and Islamic governance more broadly, um, how we understand our own relationship to these issues, because we do see ourselves as very much um, connected to the situation in Palestine as having a responsibility to talk about it and to be not just talk about it, but do something about it as well. Um, but first, I do want to ask you, um, Dr. Aisha, um, kind of if you could just give us like, yeah, some background about, you know, how you um, came to start studying the Islamic sciences, like your educational background, and then how that led you to then start Gems of Light. So with for myself, my father is Palestinian. My mother is part Palestinian, part Spanish. And when I was born in, in the U.S., but then we moved to Palestine and then continued I graduated high school from from the US but then I decided that I wanted to pursue an Islamic studies degree because I felt that the most thing that people needed was really to learn about the most important part of their life which is the essence of their creation the essence of their life and that's when I moved to Masjid al-Aqsa or moved to Palestine and moved back in order to continue Islamic studies um, the 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 bachelor's degree was Islamic it was Islamic fiqh, but that's because my professor, um, uh, Dr. Adib Hurani, he was the one that said when I told him should I go for da'wah um, studies or should I go for fiqh, and he said Man arada an al fiqh. whoever wants to believe they should read the fiqh. Fiqh is the place where you should learn about 
uh, you should learn about your deen and fiqh is the place to go to. So he just said, give me your slip. And he just took my slip and right there signed it as he was standing. <laughs> and there, there I go. I go into fiqh and that becomes who I am. But Palestine, on the other hand, um, it, you know, living the occupation and, and living and getting you know, from Al-Quds to Ramallah at the time, which was where my college was headquartered, going every single day and going through those checkpoints and look at, going through all those struggles. And even when I was a young girl, I, I was also living in Palestine and there was a time where I wasn't able to go to school um, because of the occupation. So just being in the midst of all the, the the clashes, all the situation, there's absolutely no way if you are living in Palestine and politics politics becoming a, a margin or a side talk, it is your life. It is every everything that you live in. Every single time you go to school, every time you want to buy food, every single time you go to pray, your your situation, your life is deeply connected with the political situation. You are not disconnected. You are not whatsoever disconnected from the political situation. It becomes your life. And of course, not just the political side, but even the side where, you know, living in a Masjid al-Aqsa, like right next to you, Masjid al-Aqsa, and right next to you, all those different, all those different zawaya, which are considered the, the Sufi, Sufi areas, and all those different um, libraries, all those different, um, uh, all those different corners that actually was, you know, the, the street that I lived on is called Chara al-Hakari, and the street of al-Hakari, Al-Hakari was actually a Kurdish soldier that uh, that participated with Salah al-Din al-Ayyubi. So he was wow. a leader. Um, he was a leader. He, you can't just live on a street that's called Al-Hakari and then you go through Silisla and then you go through uh, and then you and I I also studied in in the school that was once that was once um uh, a fiqh a fiqh place it was a school for fiqh um you know al-madrasa al-madrasa al-ashrafiyya al-madrasa tankaziyya al-madrasa tankaziyya is right now is right now considered a headquarter for the israeli soldiers and this was something that i was passing by every day every time they would open the door you could see you could see the the different things that spoke of the richness of Islamic art, the Islamic history, the Islamic things. And every time you see that there is really soldiers that are occupying this school that was once a, a main school that was teaching al-fiqh al and teaching hadith and teaching Islamic studies, you cannot just pass by without feeling without feeling torn, exacerbated from your own identity. You just can't. It, it, is, it is who you are. It, this place, this place actually speaks your Islamic identity, every single corner of it. And to see that it's occupied, to see the injustice and all that, and to be silenced and you can't talk about it was, 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 was really something that was like choking you. It's choking you. Why can't I talk about the injustice that is there? It just chokes you. And 
you know, you can hold in your tears and, and you can they, you can be um, silenced, but not for too long. And it became it became part of me. It you you can't separate it. It's it's part of my identity. You can't separate it. It's not because I am Palestinian, because I don't necessarily consider the Palestinian side of me necessarily, you know, what what is making me connected to the place. It's actually the Muslim side of me that's making me connected to the place. And that's what's making that place actually part of me. Actually, that it's very interesting because it leads me to my next question, which is that, um, and we're seeing this increasingly more now with people who are advocating for Palestine from a political standpoint, but trying to um, disconnect it from the fact that Palestine is significant for us as Muslims, because you know it's very clear to see how it's you know how the political situation is significant for people living there and people who are occupied in Palestine. Um, but then the question, you know. And I, it's, you know, it sucks that we have to address this, but I think it is important, you know, to ask what is the significance of Palestine and of the situation there for all Muslims? You know, I always like to answer, the, you know, the, the story uh, or the question based on a story. If you look at the story of Islam, if you look at the Quran, it's always, it's always laying out in the story and it's telling you the story and how it started and where it's continuing. And, and there, are certain, there are certain settings in the story that makes, that, that makes it that place to help you understand the history and why and the importance and what's the big deal about it. Let me, let me, answer, the, let me answer it by talking about the story and what we're really talking about here. If you look at the story and where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in the Quran, for example, about Adam and Nuh and, and Ibrahim alayhi salam and then Ibrahim and then Ismail and then Ishaq and, and the story there and, 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 and how Prophet Ibrahim was moving. The whole story and the setting and, and how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was, was telling them to go for Al-Ard al-Mubarakah and ordering Prophet Musa alayhi salam to take Bani Israel to, to Al-Ard al-Mubarakah. The whole story is really to tell us that every single prophet who was receiving and who was actually carrying the mes the message of Islam, it really is the story of Islam. And all the story of Islam, it always had Al-Ard al-Mubarakah was a significant part of the story. Al-Ard al-Mubarakah, which is Palestine, which is Bilad al-Shem, Al-Ard al-Mubarakah was always part of the story because down the road, you'll see how it's also going to continue to be part of the story and why. Let me just continue this one. Now, you continue Prophet Ishaq, Prophet Musa alayhi salam and the story of how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was telling Bani Israel to go to Palestine and then muharramatun alayhim why because of the sin they committed you cannot be a sinner and actually be in al-ard al-mubarakah it doesn't you you can't be there it becomes muharrama it becomes something that is forbidden onto you and you continue the story so why were they ordered to go to palestine what's the big idea any any prophet that was that was um ordered to continue to deliver the message and make this message be delivered to the rest of the world 
Palestine was actually the start. How was it the start? That's why if you look at the time when the Prophet ﷺ, remember Prophet Isa ﷺ was also in Palestine. The Prophet ﷺ, now jumping onto the Muhammad ﷺ, Prophet Muhammad ﷺ, when Prophet Muhammad ﷺ was on his deathbed, he had ordered that the mission the of Usama ibn Zaid to continue even when he was on his deathbed, that it should continue. Why continue with Usama ibn Zayd? Usama ibn Zayd's mission was to continue in order to continue getting to Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa because Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa, the land of Palestine, is going to be the focal point the focal point to delivering the message. And when we speak about politics, you cannot separate politics from the story of Dean. That's why when you look at Fir'aun and he's a political leader and you look at all those different prophets and how they were they were tackling and how they were challenging uh, challenging the, um, the, the the chieftains and challenging the people, the story is not is, is not to be separated from the politics with it back then because the story of Islam is actually part of the whole global politics. And this is the point. Palestine has always been throughout history the focal point of a global politics from the time of Prophet Ibrahim to the times even before to the times after. Palestine is going to be the main focal point of the story of Islam. The focal point of the story of Islam actually acts from the one, the place of its blessing, two, and which is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala let the Prophet actually go from Laylatul Isra' wal Mi'raj from Masjid al Haram to Masjid al Aqsa in order to connect those two, that these cannot be whatsoever separated, but it's actually one. What is one? One which is Aqidat al Tawheed, the connection between all the Prophets, Muhammad. Ibrahim, Ishaq, Ismail, Musa, all of it is actually the story of the message of La ilaha illallah. So therefore, when you see Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa, Muslims losing Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa, that's when you know it actually became the, the that thermometer, if you would want to look at it, it's the scale that measures the Muslim ummah, the measure the Muslim ummah's connection with Islam. Whenever they are far away from their Islam, it's going to be just like how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala distant Bani Israel from Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa and from and from Al-Ard Al-Mubarakah, you will be distanced away from it. So to go back. And really see what does Palestine act like? Palestine acts like that measurement to test your deen. And it also is the place where you would you would hold because of the geopolitical side of it, the geopolitical connection of it, it is actually in the middle of uh, the, the the important continents and of course to get to the different areas you're going to need to if you're going to control those areas politically when you what is the issue of politics well the politics you cannot separate it from ideas politics are are the the reflection the politics and military and all that is really how are I, those ideas spreading
You cannot consider that politics is just an issue, is just an issue of, of economical interests. It's not just economical interests. It's also ideas, ideas that are being implemented and how far these ideas are extended is really measured through how much is it controlling? How much is it in authority? So when you look at Palestine, when you look at Palestine, even during the Crusade era, when you look at Palestine during the Crusade era, when when the, the Crusaders were were uh, controlling Palestine, the Muslims at the time, the Muslims at the time were really were really all separated. And because they were all separated, that's why the Crusaders managed to actually control Palestine and managed to control not only Palestine, but managed to control Egypt, managed to control the Levant, Jordan, etc., all those different areas. I, I, I get off track. Subhanallah, you've really established how important Palestine is in Islamic history. And most importantly, that, you know, it's not ended either and that, you know, we should be help, like, hopeful because, you know, we know what is decreed. But I think it's important also to look at how this significance has been honoured throughout the ages as well. Because, you know, we can argue in the modern day, like post-World War One, that, you know, the Balfour Declaration and the Sykes-Picot Agreement, you know, we haven't really honoured the significance of Palestine within Islam. But, and, you know, it has become the cornerstone of geopolitics in uh, the Middle East. But if we take it all the way back, so if we look at, like, you know, the Battle of Yarmouk, when, you know, the Muslims actually made their mark upon the region, like, you know, we've ruled um, Jerusalem and Palestine for pretty much 13 centuries. You know, we had the Umayyads and um, the first Umayyad Khalif, uh, Maui, he actually proclaimed himself Khalif in Jerusalem, even though his capital was Damascus. And then slowly we had, like, the building of the Dome of the Rock. And, you know, slowly we are seeing Islam is growing and flourishing in this land. And subhanAllah, you know, we have the Abbasid period and that's, you know, that pretty much marks the you know the islamic golden age and a testament to the golden age is what you know what it produces and a lot of brilliant scholars have come out from the land of palestine and I, if i'm not mistaken i think imam shafi was born in palestine too but um you know i'd love to say that everything was going well in palestine until like the british came and they ruined everything but subhanallah palestine's always been one of those places that you know there's always been something going on and like you said the muslims were so divided at the time of the crusades there was like muslims fighting for Palestine and you know betraying other Muslims too but it is a sacred land for like three different Abrahamic religions so I guess that plays a role but you know the exception of the 100 years of like crusader domination um that brings us to Lahaldin right and which is everyone's like favorite military leader but one of the biggest things that this has taught me so you know the liberation of Jerusalem was such a big event in Islamic history and the actual like military and strategic weight was brilliant but the aftermath is what I found like the most compelling because, and I think as Muslims, especially in this day and age when we have such a loose uh, grasp on Jerusalem, is something that we can take from it. Uh, and I just want to say that. So his um, Salahuddin's um, scribe said this one line. He said that um, after the Jerusalem was liberated, um, the readers of Quran were reading the words of guidance. Flags were raised and pens were sharpened to convey good tidings. Eyes were filled with tears, while hearts were humbled in devotion to Allah. And I just want to say that this wasn't treated as just a territory that they captured, you know, this wasn't just a land that they had recovered. But, you know, so Palestine's pretty much been reduced to like a geographical location right now. We discuss it in like metric of like square feet and acres, but to the people, it was like, you know, it was, it was so much more. It was a responsibility. It was sacred. It was the home to the Muslims. And so when people do try to say things like, you know, Palestine is not a Muslim issue, it's almost like, 
it's so hard to separate it because that's a, that's what it feels like because it has such a monumental role in our faith and you know in our history subhanallah yeah one a uh, couple of things number one is that you know when you actually open the quran you could see subhanalladhi asra bi'abdihi laylan min al-masjid al-haram ila al-masjid al-aqsa ladhi barakna hawla you could see that in islam if you actually look at surah al-isra surah al-isra is right in the middle of the quran it's actually right in the heart of the quran and the surah al-isra surah al-isra was actually revealed in the the time when the prophet actually went for al-isra wal miraj was really when he was isolated, when he was boycotted, when he was facing the harshest moments during during his time at Atta'if and that time of that time when they were boycotted, the time of the, the death of Khadija, the death of Abu Talib, all those different moments and and then to to give that support, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala um, makes that time of uh, now the other part is that I would like to comment on the issue of it being a capital was it necessarily a capital at, at you know throughout history for uh, for the Muslims not being a capital does not necessarily mean that it was not significant um, because Mecca itself was not a capital. Uh, yes, maybe yeah. Zubair had it for some time, yeah. but Mecca itself was not a capital. The, when we talk about a, pal- a, a, a capital in, in a place of a place or of, of any uh, sovereignty, we're, we're looking at um, a number of different reasons or a number of different, different, um, different um, things that will actually help making a place be politi- uh, politically um, fitting to be a capital. And at the time, the Arab, they couldn't handle the cold weather of Al-Quds, of Jerusalem. You remember, they are more of a desert people. So to actually be in in a cold area like Jerusalem, like Al-Quds, which is on, on a mountain, was really hard for them. And that's why even when they went to Medina, they all got sick. They actually they all got sick and had flus. And that al-humma is what they were complaining of, which is which is fevers. So the, the cold weather to them was, was something that they could not just get over like that. Uh, the other part is that when we look at Dimashq, for example, the reason why it was um, why it was um, the the capital at one point was really because Muawiyah Abi Sufyan was there, and and there are a number of different one nearness to the sea, the other part which is um, the 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 different. Uh, the geopolitical or the geographical area and the economical area that that it can actually help act as uh, as a as a as a capital. But Palestine, when you look at Al Quds itself, um, it's a mountainous area. And it wasn't easy to actually get there. But at the same time, you could see that Umar ibn al-Khattab, Umar ibn al-Khattab, um, when when he was by Safaronius when he was actually asked that he should be the one to come. Um, that was the first time that Umar ibn al-Khattab ever went to any place um, after the Muslims had um, um, had uh, opened or conquered it. And Umar ibn al-Khattab went to Al-Quds but did not go anywhere else. Well, that's because of the significance that the place has. And the Masjid al-Aqsa, 
the Prophet actually said in the hadith uh, that three places or one is not in um, so uh, is like you know the encouragement to or encouraging anybody to you know travel and it's not over highly of um, you know put in place of importance as much as three places and he mentioned al-masjid al-aqsa al-masjid al-haram al-masjid al-masjid al-nabawi or al-madina and al-masjid al-aqsa which tells us that you know when we're saying to rihal we're talking about that it is highly recommended why these three places well these three places because of the religious significance and the spiritual significance that they have in connecting the muslim with the land in the story of tawhid the land of the story of the land of the story and the inspiration of the mm. prophets. So that's why even in Islam, that going to Masjid al-Aqsa throughout history was actually part of the Hajj journey that the Muslims were, were doing. Masjid al-Aqsa was like one of those areas that if you were going to go to Hajj, you're going to consider Masjid al-Aqsa as one of those areas to go to yeah. Hajj. Yeah, I think... SubhanAllah, Dr. Aisha, you and Amina as well, your comments just really hammered home how significant this this land is for us as Muslims in historical perspective. And I think, Dr. Aisha, your point about unifying the aqidah of not just what Muhammad brought, but with all of the previous prophets, it just is, is so true. And Alhamdulillah, I was lucky enough to be able to go to Palestine a few years ago. And subhanAllah, when you travel around, like, you know, the region and to the different cities, uh, they have masajid, like, established in many different places that they say, well, you know, Musa salam was rumored to have walked here. Yusuf salam was said to be here. Harun salam was here. And they have masajid dedicated where you go and they have cenotaphs often, which are not the graves of these prophets, but just to mark the fact that they touched that land. And the fact that it is a place where so many prophets have walked, I just think is is, is so beautiful in showing that this deen that we are following is not just something that is brought by Muhammad but actually, as you said, it's it's this legacy of Tawheed that we are actually upholding. And specifically, I think that, you know, Alhamdulillah, generally, you know, Muslims, we are very aware of the significance of Masjid al-Aqsa in particular, and obviously what's happening to it at the moment, but very often the significance of other areas, some of kind of the ones which obviously as somebody who has lived in the region, mashallah, like, you know, you are aware of because you passed it every day, but there are so many other blessed places there that are also under threat, um, the same way that you talked about um, the madaris that were uh, in the area where, where you lived. And for me, I was thinking specifically of the Ibrahimi Mosque, which is in Hebron, in Al-Khalil, and is a site that, subhanAllah, is so significant that I think some scholars even say that it's kind of almost the fourth holiest site in Islam, because this is a land which Ibrahim salam actually purchased, and they have, again, monuments, cenotaphs, uh, to mark the fact that this was definitely an area that he was in. And this is a very old mosque. This is something that was as well protected by many of the the rulers of Jerusalem uh, throughout Islamic history. And yet today, subhanAllah, it is continually attacked by Zionist settlers. Uh, it's obviously the site of a very famous massacre as well in 1994, where an American Israeli settler actually went in and killed over 30 people and injured over 100 people in just, you know, uh, in a massacre after Fajr, uh, you know, I mean, Islamophobic doesn't even describe it because it's just another level of Islamophobia, subhanAllah. But 
till today, like, you know, there's continually news stories that I'm always seeing of Israeli authorities attempting to ban the Adhan in that masjid or flying the Israeli flag over that. And it's crazy to think, but subhanAllah, this, this mosque is actually financed by a waqf. It's, it's, it's an Islamic trust that is where it's deriving its income from. And yet the fact that it's being continually assaulted and denigrated is just something that unfortunately has has become the norm. Uh, I mean, I kind of gone on a little bit of a tangent there, but I think it's it's beautiful the way you highlighted how this is something that is so intrinsic to us as, as Muslims and part of our Islamic identity, not just even for the historical identity of, of, of the people who have lived there. But I'd like to ask your opinion, actually, Dr. Aisha. Of course, alhamdulillah, as you said, you know, the significance of Palestine in our religion and to us as Muslims is there. We, we know that. But personally, I feel that I have seen that, alhamdulillah, you know, generally pro-Palestinian activism has been strong in the Muslim world and among Muslim minorities in the West as well. Everybody, you know, we, we have that natural love for it, alhamdulillah. But sometimes I see things that suggest to me that this is changing, both on a community level, but definitely as well on a political level. Have you seen anything that you feel is, is significant in that respect? I absolutely agree that a lot has um, has been changing. Um, the most dangerous thing that is changing is to regard Palestine as a national issue. This is the most dangerous thing. Yeah. Because to regard Palestine as if it's, you know, a Palestinian issue, it's a... Um, it's a it's a group of people that had some land that is stolen. So why are we fighting for the Palestinians after all? Is the most dangerous issue because Palestine is not a Palestinian issue. There was a lot of work from the Zionist area to make Palestine. First, it was a Arabi issue, and then it became a Pal Palestinian issue, and now it's becoming the West Bank issue. Um, and this is the most dangerous thing that is happening, which is to separate the importance of Palestine from it being a religious issue to being uh, to being a nationalist issue, and then later on, later on, being able to regard it. Uh, to regard it that, okay, if you're talking about social justice here, well, let's show you social justice. And and then we're going to talk about, well, the defenders of Palestine is none other but the PLO. When in reality, the Palestinian Authority in reality is is actually uh, is actually a, a secular group and uh, the Palestinian Authority is, is really right now taking on their role of of introducing Israeli interest and enforcing Israeli interest in where a lot of times if you are to speak against Israel or to be a Palestinian activist in Palestine, the one that might take over in torturing you is not Israel, but is the actually but it's actually the Palestinian Authority. Mm -hmm. But it's actually the PLO yeah. in where severe tortures have been done by the Palestinian Authority. And the first some of the first initiative, some of the first things that they have actually done are, are actually targeting the Dean. And right now they're actually embracing the Sidao uh, Convention, which really is the, the very feminist 
the very feminist, and I would say the very radical feminist, uh, the very radical feminist um, uh, understanding of family and to make that as the law. This is just an example um, in where you had Orthodox Jews object to a lot of the Palestinian PLO things by opening by opening prostitution homes, by opening the, the casino in Jericho, et cetera. So this is, you know, who's objecting to these to these things? It's really Israel. Orthodox Jews are objecting to this when this is just to give us an idea of how secular um, this Palestinian authority is and how far it has gone. And the, the most dangerous thing it had done was really take over take over um, the take over from having Israel appear the that major uh, that major political area that is committing all these atrocities to well let's let the Palestinians actually do the job on our behalf and that we won't appear so ugly mm -hmm. this is what's happening on ground and the Palestinian Authority is right now, presented as if it is the spokesperson on behalf of the Palestinians. So no need for any political activism to help bring in the, the injustices uh, to going into justice and to help bringing justice for the Palestinians or for this, the place there because the Palestinian, the Palestinian authority is doing the job. And then when it's discovered the Palestinian authority and all the different, all the different, um, facade which is all the different corruption that is in it that's when people started well if the palestinian authority is is so corrupt well that means you know to call for a palestinian for a palestinian state is not good after all and here's the thing is that when we talk about a palestinian state it is it is also part of the, the, the that strategy, I would call it the part of the strategy in where again, it's making it a national issue, not, not um, remembering and many oftentimes people forgetting that even the map that you see today was really from the time of Sykes Biko. That's not necessarily what Philistine is. Mm -hmm. So people are really forgetting a lot of history and they're, they're living the made up facts on ground there 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 are new facts that are invented and people and many muslims are not realizing that this is a strategy to help get to the next step yeah and unfortunately many muslims are really becoming an easy target to live these strategies and not realize that that was a strategy mm -hmm. and then this is how uh, the issue of Palestine is becoming forgotten. It's becoming a nation issue. It's becoming some ethnic issue. It's just a group of people called Palestinians, and it's becoming this problem for Palestinians and not necessarily an issue of Islam. It's not necessarily an issue of the story of Islam anymore because it's a national issue. This is the main. This is the main reason of how this has become uh, forgotten. The other part, which is, I think, the 
the the different atrocities worldwide that is happening to the Muslims, whether we're talking about um, in Syria, the Uyghur, in in China, and the different uh, Muslims in Burma, all those different areas where we're seeing atrocities like never before, like. Uh, things that we have never seen in our lives we thought that such that such um injustices could only be committed long ago we didn't think that such things would happen during our times yeah. where it you know one wound and a bigger wound it just makes you all of a sudden the those accumulated wounds you start forgetting well, where did the, when did the pain start? Where's the pain? And then you start forgetting about different pains because yeah. the pains that the Muslims are going and facing in China, in where women are, are raped and put in so-called educational camps. And, you know, they're calling them that way. But in reality, these people are are exacerbated from their own Islam, from their identity, where they can't even can't even eat halal, can't even say Allahu Akbar, can't even say Bismillah, can't even, you know, simple yeah. things. The same thing when we're talking about Burma, how right in front of our own eyes, Muslim countries were rejecting the, the Muslims in Myanmar actually actually find a safe space in, or a safe place to be in and thrown in the sea and drowning them in the sea, or even the Muslims, or even the, the, what's happening in Syria, it is becoming like the wound where many times it's, it's becoming so hard for many people to even listen to the news because it, it became very traumatizing. Yeah. It became very traumatizing where you, you can't even help, especially there were times where we were seeing what was going on in Syria. It was, it was almost, it was almost unbelievable. Mm -hmm. yeah. Are there still people tortured in that manner? And that, that became, that made, sorry, that made Palestine become like that, that place where it was the wound, but it was the wound at one hand, but but mm -hmm. then there were the bigger wounds and that's how it became we're not sure which wound to talk about anymore yeah. that's so so true subhanallah i think both of the issues that you've mentioned that making it of a national identity issue and then the fact that the ummah is facing just so many problems it's 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 depressing for people to have to think about solving just any one of them, let alone all of them. It really has contributed to, I think, just these issues, almost not decreasing in significance. I think people's love is genuinely there. But personally, I feel like in communities, at least in, in, in the West, and obviously in my context in the UK, I'm increasingly meeting people who say that they're just not interested in the politics of it anymore. And I think that that's definitely because of the two things that you've raised. When it becomes a national issue, people feel that, yeah, let them deal with it or let regional neighbors deal with it. There's no Muslim imperative for them to deal with it. And definitely that, of course, people are just kind of tired and they and, and they have they don't have the emotional stamina to actually get through the news about what is actually going on, because it is very hard. But for me as well, I think it's it's interesting as to how and, and, and a worrying trend that I've seen where at least in, in the UK, there has been an uptake in people making trips to Palestine. And Alhamdulillah, like this was at first kind of marketed as the fact that we need to go as Muslim 
communities in this in who have been born and raised in the West and make a connection to this place and actually you know see for ourselves what is going on. Uh, and you have like some big Muslim organizations here who they organize these trips quite regularly. But I've spoken to quite a few people who have made multiple trips now to Palestine, alhamdulillah, as part of these organizations. But very often they come back almost more disengaged with the political issues that you have been mentioning previously. I remember specifically uh, speaking to one brother about it and he uh, had met a Palestinian man on one of these trips and this Palestinian man had basically been the recipient of a kidney transplant in a hospital in Israel. And obviously, you know, this Palestinian man was very grateful for the fact that, alhamdulillah, he had been cured and Allah had been able to give this uh, this kidney to him. But this brother was very much emphasizing in his conversation to me that, you know, can you believe that he got it from an Israeli man? And, you know, the treatment was in an Israeli hospital and, you know, the Palestinian Authority hospitals weren't good enough and they were waiting for so long. Like, this is good. This is good. As though almost Palestinians were receiving better treatment from Israelis. And so this this conflict is not as we have imagined it as kind of Israelis versus Palestinians. And this was frustrating on many levels, also because at the time I was working as a journalist specializing on Palestine. And literally that week I had been speaking to Palestinian citizens of Israel, including some of the members of the Israeli parliament who, you know, they go there and they try and uh, raise the profile of Palestinian issues. And if you want to speak about the discrimination that Palestinians actually face in Israel, like there's no better people to ask. And I was hearing this day in, day out. And then this brother was really trying to convince me that because this Palestinian guy got a kidney transplant, actually, it's not as bad as all that. And I think that as well, when I went to Palestine, um, there were some incidents that made me see that people are not really getting actually a better picture by being there because it's a very uh, narrow picture and it's just very different to what they imagined. I remember specifically going to Al-Amari refugee camp in Ramallah. And it, I think the Palestinian issue is just, it's as, as a refugee problem, it is, it's been going on for so long that the refugee camps that you have in Jordan, in Lebanon, and in Palestine are not like the kind of refugee camps that you see now in, in, in Syria or after other or in Yemen or other kind of wars and, and civil conflicts that we're seeing. These are, you know, people living in buildings that have been made long term, that their, their refugee status and their displacement status has not changed for 40, 50 years. Generations are being raised in these camps. So they essentially are, are very cramped flats. And, you know, those people are still very disadvantaged. They can't work easily. They can't leave. Their their, their progression and their, their freedom is completely constrained. But subhanAllah, I was going then with other people from the UK on this group. And some people were making really insensitive comments because they expected, I guess, to see people in refugee camps. And when they saw them living in a flat, they were like, oh, wow, their TV is bigger than mine. Or, oh, wow, I wouldn't mind living here. And it was really painful for me to hear because I think they were just getting the completely wrong end of, of, of actually the reality that these people are living. But unfortunately, many people, they do love to go, obviously, for the spiritual aspect. And in order to keep going to Israel and keep making these trips, they're actually shifting further away from activism. Because if you do have some involvement with, you know, the boycott, divestment, sanctions campaign or any other kind of pro-Palestinian activism, you go to marches or protests and things like that, Israel won't let you in. So... I'm seeing a lot of young people who, alhamdulillah, care about Palestine, but it's not in some of the aspects that, that you've spoken about, which I think is, is, is concerning for us as a community in terms of how we envisage this, this in, in the future. I think the main reason uh, for that is many times people are viewing Palestine as if it's a social justice issue mm-hmm. um, and not necessarily um, a political issue 
and what really is going on. If you want to look at it as just a social justice issue, you can't even compare um, the social justice, even if we're talking about, even if we're talking about um, the the refugee camps. I mean, I, I was in Lebanon two years ago. The refugee camps are way worse in Lebanon um, than the refugee camps that are in Palestine. Way worse. They're not even comparable. The the smell, the 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 lifestyle, the even getting out of the refugee camp in Lebanon, you would have checkpoints from the Lebanese soldiers. They can't even buy anything. They can't even they they don't even they they can't even re, um, register in universities like or even go to hospitals and even get those kind of those kind of treatments, etc. It's 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 despicable it is unimaginable to actually be a palestinian in a refugee camp in lebanon so it's definitely not even comparable to how the refugees are living in the refugee camps in in palestine whether we're talking about adhesha or whether we're talking about il amari is uh, you know it's actually if you, it's not necessarily the worst but if you would go to balata uh, the that refugee camp is way worse than Al Amari. If you would go to Qalandia, then you're talking about, you know, very similar to Al Amari. So, you know, it depends on the refugee camp that you go. But if you go to Gaza, those are even worse. So, it, but the the thing is, is that many are considering Palestine as just a social justice issue. And that's actually wrong because Palestine issue is not just a social justice issue. It is actually a political issue. And what I mean by a political issue, I mean slash religious issue. What do I mean by that? Zionism is not necessarily backed up by the religion. Zionism is, if you go back to the history, whether it's in the the Convention of Basel in in, in, in 1897, in Switzerland, or if you talk about the the history and how they were looking for a place to, you know, gather, whether it's in Uganda or whether it's in, it's in, you know, different, different countries, etc. And the final choice was really Palestine. And the, the choice to have it in Palestine was for a political reason. The political reason um, was really to curtail the Islamic growth, to curtail and the reason why there was the the British Zionist and later on the American support was not necessarily because there was so much of the care about Israelis or Jews to find a homeland and they're just Mesekin and let's, you know, give them the support because of the what they had faced in the Holocaust, etc. In fact, the ones that committed the Holocaust were none other by the ones that by the countries that are actually giving the Israel the most support. <laughs> <laughs> Whether it's uh, you know the, the, these the the Jews were the Jews were living in ghettos the were the Jews were were actually the minority in in um, in in Europe and they were finding a safe haven in the Muslim world in at, during that that time in the Ottoman uh, the Ottoman Khilafah so it wasn't really an issue of 
you know, a social justice issue to give the Yehud a place to be welcomed in, a place to live, a place where they would feel they would feel uh, a sense of belonging. No, this is where we have to get back to the whole story. The whole story is not a social justice issue. The whole story is really to be a dagger in the heart of the Muslim world, a dagger in the heart of the Muslim world to be able to control the Muslim world. Why do you think this, the, the, the American support or the British support or et cetera? And this is unfortunately, this is unfortunately what many of the Muslims are not, many of the Muslims or those that are that are concerned about, you know, Palestinian, uh, the what we would call the Palestinian, okay, is that they would actually consider that, you know, it's a, it's it's just an issue of, um, you know, a group of people that are being uh, that that are being uh, tortured or that are being bombed by Israel. No, the the backup that Israel is getting, and and by the way, most of the Jews that are actually living in Palestine are actually secular Jews and not not religious Jews. Yes, sixty seven percent of them. And by the way. 67 percent or so percent of religious Jews, though the, the Orthodox Jews, those people don't even participate mm-hmm. in what is called the Israeli defense. In other words, they don't even participate in the army. They depend on the welfare system. They depend on government. And this actually, this is very important to understand that even Israel, it's not a religious issue. Israel is not a religious issue. Uh, what I mean, religious issue here, meaning Israel is not um, Israel and the, the making of Israel and the making of um, an Israeli government is not because they are so focused on religion and that they want to practice their faith. That's not necessarily the case. And that, that's why when you look at um, Israel is really in need for the Orthodox Jews and their presence is really because of a number. So when you look at, for example, Shimon Peres, who actually said our 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 struggle with the, with the Palestinians is not a geographical issue, but a demographical issue, and when you look at that, it's really how do I control that is you know the, the Israeli uh, perspective? How do I control a land where I don't really I don't really belong in? So what do I need? Well, I need more and more citizens. I need more and more people. Where am I going to get these more and more people? I will bring in immigrants from the outside to replace the people that are the Palestinians that are that are living there by taking away their right to stay and creating facts on ground. This is the main tactic that Israel is doing, which is recreating facts on ground. But the recreation of facts on ground, you got to remember, it's not an issue of Jewish versus versus Muslim here. But this is an issue of all those that want to curtail the expansion and the power of Islam. That's the whole idea to curtail the power of Islam and the the power of Islam on those areas is really by getting a very important ally. Mm -hmm. That ally is none other by 
this ally that we managed to get, which is um, which is a Jewish group that we share culture with the geo uh, the Judeo Christian um, uh, Judeo Christian background, and therefore we can have that support. That's why the most important the most important ones to support Israel, at least in the U.S., are really none other by but but the 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 Christian uh, the Christian Republicans, the Christian groups, the WASPs, etc. Those are the most important those are the most important ones to back up israel when we're talking about apac we're talking about american enterprise the most yeah. important um the most important people to to support israel is really it those that believe that israel is is um uh israel is really the the kingdom of god so mm-hmm. you know it's it's really sad that you were talking about 70 million in the US where right? this is not a small number by the way we're looking at all these people seeing seeing that this is this is something you know that is connected to the religion but it's haram you know quote unquote for a Muslim <laughs> to think that is that Palestine is a religious is a religious issue once you say it's a religious issue, you'll, you're, you're looked at as if you are a fanatic, as if you are an extremist. And, and unfortunately, Muslims are embarrassed, are embarrassed to speak about Palestine from the religious standpoint because they're, they, would, they would be so uh, worried that they might appear so backward-minded. But subhanAllah, this is what Islam was telling the whole thing, the whole story of how throughout history from the beginning and even telling us of all the different things that will happen in the future. It's not to, just to amuse you. No, it's only, it's actually to tell you the story of Islam, the story of Islam, the story of al-haq versus al-batil and who's, who, how things are going to be, the fitan, that are going to be coming up and in order to tell you that your focus when you look at politics don't separate it whatsoever from don't separate it from the main focus from the main focal point is that the reason why they were tortured is because is because they believed in Aziz al-Hamid. The whole issue of the crusade was not because the Muslims were taking over the, the, the tomb of Jesus, peace be upon him. It was really because it was to curtail the Muslim power. And that's the same thing. We gotta go back and put those um those perspectives in place. It was really to curtail the Muslim power, and so it is today. It is to curtail any Muslim power, any Muslim government. Governance and any Muslim, um, any Muslim um, awakening, and therefore that's why Israel is really there. But if you look at most of the Israelis, they're actually not religious. Most of them don't even don't even believe in God. Most of them don't even believe in God and consider yeah. that the and consider that um, Judaism is is an is is actually an an ethnicity and a blood mm-hmm. issue and is not necessarily a religious issue. Yeah. So they're. And this is really important is that it's so sad that many Muslims, you know, they're they're really thinking that it's a social justice issue. So when they go to Palestine and they're like, oh, it's a, you know, look, they're getting they're getting health care. And by the way, that's not all the Palestinians, by the way, only yeah, the, only a very small number, mm-hmm. only a very small number in um, those that uh, carry the 
Chutz and or the what is called Chutz, but it's really that uh, blue ID. Yeah. Um, and they they're almost two hundred and fifty. 50,000 people. So 250,000 people, which are the residents of of the right now, what is called the Jerusalem area, 250,000 people or 263,000. Um, and right now they, they could easily lose their ID. That's considered a temporary ID, by the way, yeah. temporary ID. Um, and they could lose it at any time. So the rest of the residents of the West Bank, they don't get um, they don't get those um, the healthcare system, and they don't get those um, th- those cares. But in fact, they go through um, a different kind of insurance system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. That's smart. So yeah, definitely. And you know, the American groups that you have mentioned, I've noticed that the focus that so they've twisted the question now. So rather than focusing on the Palestine. Uh, and Palestinians, they are now asking questions like, does Israel have a right to exist? And this sounds pretty sincere, but it's pretty disingenuous because, you know, states don't really have rights, people do, and it's the people of Palestine whose rights are being violated. And I guess when you talk about the bigger wounds, people have kind of become desensitized to the Palestine issue purely because violence and war is so prevalent in these Muslim countries, and it's not something that even evokes a response from us anymore. But this is why the normalization is so disingenuous, because it's trying to soften the Israeli image. And this is not just an effort by the Israelis themselves, this includes a lot of other countries and a lot of other states as well. And like you mentioned, yes, they will provide you health care, but you know, they'll also be the ones treating you and cutting off your aid and you know, stunting all of your development. So you can't have you know, hospitals of your own. And if, you're, if they're not ignoring you, where they basically are framing the Palestinians as the obstacle, you know, uh, these are the people who are forming these, how do they say it, you know, Islamist groups that, you know, are preventing peace. And there's a very reduced perspective in this outlook because, you know, they will criminalize certain groups, um, certain um, Islamist groups, as they call it, or, you know, Hamas for like violent um, behavior, but they will not acknowledge the role of Israel or even these states who are supporting Israel in the inception of um, such groups, uh, like they just popped out of nowhere. So it's almost seen as if it's only an Israel and Palestine issue when there are so many other people involved in this issue. Yeah, I think coming off of that, obviously, Dr. Aisha, you know, we've heard a lot in the news over the past couple of months about Palestine because of another stage of normalization that we are seeing now, where it's not just, you know, kind of individual efforts in the community or even kind of specific groups on the ground, like the PA, the relationship between the PA and Israel, but we're seeing open normalization between many of the Gulf states, the UAE in particular, and Palestine. Um, I think for some people, you know, they may not see as to why this is such a big deal. Uh, They can just, you know, secret relations between these countries have been happening for a very long time. But why is it now that this... The, the, the fact that you know they are openly acknowledging this relationship and that they're opening embassies in each other's countries they're having chartered flights they're trading what does this mean from a geopolitical perspective what's the significance of this see when somebody lacks integrity it makes no sense to ask them about a principle and why they didn't live up to the principle and that's the same thing when you look at Palestine as an issue, it's not just about justice and social justice, but it's also about living the story that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had taken upon the Muslims, which is connecting to connecting to the message, connecting to the the main mission that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had taken upon the Muslims. 
when you see people that don't even not only care about their own people, don't expect them to care about to care about social justice elsewhere. If their own people, they don't even care about them. Their own people, just like MBS, didn't even didn't even care about his own people and actually was was even though Khashoggi was not even was not even a, a significant opponent. He was saying he was disagreeing with him, but was willing to totally burn, to totally to totally with chemicals to totally put him down the drain. When you see somebody that is that brutal, when you see UAE willing, willing to support massive killing and massive and massive uh, massive uh, hunger and massive massive wars in Yemen, you will see that that's what I meant by. When somebody lacks integrity, it's no surprise that they would lack the integrity to go farther just for the sake of little, if not even no interest whatsoever. UAE, what interest does it have in Israel? All it needs is the support. Now, when we look at UAE, Israel, etc., you are very distant. The whole, the whole relationship between those areas is the whole interest is one. Why UAE support um, Haftar? Why UAE support Al-Assad? Why UAE support Sisi? Why UAE support every single area that is anti-Islam? Because they know that it's an issue of wanting to go against anything it's an issue of mabda it's an issue of integrity it's an issue of it's an issue of principle so they are supporting every single area such as in libya in syria in in yemen in uh, egypt the reason why they're supporting those areas against against who against the 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 whole the whole population against the citizens themselves those yeah. are are the ones that are facing that are facing um, the oppression. Why are they supporting? Why are they supporting those leaders against the Shab, against the whole population? Well, that's because they know that having having um, the the those areas where the it's the population, it's the return of people to their awakening actually means their own throne. So UAE and Israel are really allies on one thing, which is to go against the citizens and to go against the people and to go against the awakening of Islam, period. Yeah. It is a in one it's on one mission. And that's why you look at, for example, UAE. So why are you against why are you why are you supporting Sisi? What do you have with Sisi? I mean, this guy's just eating your money. It's because, well, we don't we want to make sure that Egypt doesn't get an Islamic any Islamic awakening whatsoever. What about what about Syria? It's distant away from you. It is all one thing. Once you have an any any Islamic awakening, and it was actually mentioned before. 
even during um there was the the, the time when um when uh, it was uh, the, the muslim the, the muslim um, um group in in algeria and even in different areas whenever there's any muslim awakening you will see in the media the western media the green peril is on the rise and all that it's seeing islam it's seeing Islam and that any awakening of Islam is considered the most dangerous threat. It is considered yeah. the most dangerous threat that they must to them. They must um, they, they must make sure it does not rise. So UAE, there's only one thing. UAE, for example, there's only one. There's only one um, mission. There's only one thing that they agree on, which is that they don't want any Islamic any Islamic awakening. They don't want the people, the people to the, the people to be awake, the people to have that that right, the people of integrity to actually have the will and go against go against um, the oppression. So that's why in Yemen, in Yemen, for example, same thing, all those different you know, look at millions suffering right now. We're looking at 16 million or right now we're being told that are actually on the threshold of actually going hungry, of actually dying of hunger. This is this is not me saying going in, you know, dying of hunger, a whole country, a whole country right before our eyes. What, who's the, who's really backing this up? It's actually Saudi and it's actually UAE. This is the situation that we're living in, in where we don't expect people of no integrity to actually be the ones to support integrity and the ones to support justice. So when it's injustice, you're going to see a volume you're going to see a person of an in, of injustice actually find other places that will support his injustice. Who will support UAE's injustice or Saudi Arabia's injustice? None other but another person of injustice, Israel. Mm -hmm. It's all one team. And subhanAllah, this is the exact thing that lately has, it's led to... Um, a lot of Muslims having difficulty trusting now who we would label as like ulama or traditional scholars or just anybody who we consider leaders from our, like in our religious community because of their um, relationship with certain governments. Um, and yeah, like they're either aiding normalization or remaining silent on it. And it has kind of led to this question of people saying, well, um, you know, what is the role of religious leaders when it comes to politics and what you know, what do what authority do they have to speak on certain things? And then what is our understanding as lay people who we defer to our scholars and to our religious leaders, but do we defer to them also when we see like the questionable political actions or alignments? Um, and this is something that has like, it becomes more fraught when I see commentary like, um, you know, Alam has the ability to make ijtihad, like he has the knowledge and the tools to do that. And so when he makes a certain ijtihad and determines that, um, it is, you know, in the best interests for him to or for her to ally with a certain government or to be an advisor to a certain government because it can then, I don't know, I guess somehow like reduce an evil that would have been worse if they had not been there as an advisor or whatever. Then it becomes an issue where when you put it in terms of ijtihad, then it becomes, okay, only ulama can talk about this and lay people don't have any like place having an opinion on this. 
So my question for you, Sheikh Aisha, is what is what are we supposed to understand the relationship between religious leaders and politics? What how do we understand that? And then what is how do we interact with them then as lay people who want to defer to our scholars, but sometimes we feel like we we can't stand by their their political actions or their political alignments. A number of things. Number one is that um, it, it's really sad that within the Muslim community, there's um, not only the Muslim community, but I would say in different communities. Whenever it's a religious leader, we would that we would usually put them on a pedestal, and then we take this gnostic view of that this person is not to be questioned. This person is spoken to by God, and this is not actually in Islam. This is not actually in Islam, but unfortunately, different Islamic organizations um, are actually at fault in this, really, in where putting the sheikh as if he is spoken to by God and therefore that he should not be asked about what he what he is decreeing, what he is doing, because for sure his scope, his understanding, his knowledge is far beyond what to then what you can understand far beyond that when what you can can see in 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 this world and this is really dangerous um because in islam there's there's no papacy in islam there's no papacy in islam there there uh, there's ilm there's the maqasid al-sharia there are the different legal maxims that you have to go to and keep in mind in order to differentiate between haq and batil there is no better than seeking ilm. And what I mean by seeking ilm, yes, seeking ilm in al-aqidah, seeking ilm in al-fiqh is important. But when you're, discussed, when you're discussing social issues and you're talking about justice and you're talking about politics, understanding politics and learning about politics is actually part of Islam. It is actually part of Islam. It is part of the Quran and Sunnah. That's why when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talked to you about the stories of the stories of what happened to those that were calling for the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the name of Islam, etc., and how they were tortured, that's all in politics. That's all in politics, that you can't separate that. That's why when we're talking about the rise of Tarikh al-Islami, and this is one thing, this is one thing the Muslim community um, is really at fault in, in where, yes, we do teach fiqh, but rarely, in fact, barely do we actually teach Islamic history. Islamic history should be taught just like you teach aqidah. Should be taught just like you teach aqidah. Politics is actually the story, is actually the story of Islam. You cannot separate it because this is the ground of where you're seeing haq and batil. This is where you're seeing your ability to practice your religion or not. Now, when we talk about a scholar, it's not that because treachery, treason is not ishtihad. It can never be ishtihad. Once you lose your integrity, losing your integrity and losing your losing your um, your principle in Islam is actually losing your taqwa. That's not ishtihad. It can't be ishtihad. Once you actually consider that a Muslim group, regardless of who that Muslim group is, you want to call them Muslim Brotherhood, you want to call them Salafiyya, you can call them Sufiyya, whatever that group is. Once you regard them terrorists, what does that tell you? Once you said they're te- terrorists, in Lugal al-Fiqhiyya, this is actually called Hadrid Dam. 
This is actually meaning that you are giving all the justification and the right and that you are saying that whoever whoever has their hand over that particular person, they would have the religious right to kill these people. Who are we talking about here? Are we talking about those that went against the Sisi? Or are we talking about those that went against Bashar? Or are we talking about those that are active in, in the different the different Western countries? Who are we talking about here when we actually call a Muslim group as a terrorist group? What are you actually doing? Why that particular group specifically? I'm not one of these groups, by the way. I don't I don't belong to any Islamic organization. But one thing is important to know is that when it's a Muslim, they can choose to be Sufi, Salafi, Ikhwan, etc. That in the end, at the end of the day, they are my Muslim brothers and sisters. <laughs> to actually give a fatwa that any that that these people are terrorists. In other words, their life can be taken away, and it is absolutely justified by the religion. I am sorry, but this is not ijtihad. But this is a transgression against Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Even if you had the lihya, even if you had the, the beard, even if you had an ijazah, even if you memorized the Quran, and even if you memorized all the sunan. No, this is against Islam. And it doesn't need, it doesn't need a scholar to distinguish that this is actually against Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that this is an injustice right before our eyes, committed under the name of Islam. This is khiyana, and it should be called so. And if we don't call it khiyana, if we don't call it by its name, then we have really not learned much about what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had taught us in the Quran, about how and who are the supporters of the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is the saddest thing that that had that right now is really happening when even so-called scholars, yes, they do have ijazas, but it doesn't make them. It doesn't make them having the right to do so-called ishtihad, and it is far away from ishtihad. Yeah. If there's no ishtihad fi mawrud al-nas, well, there's no ishtihad against the main, against the main principle and against those to actually give an ishtihad to kill those that say la ilaha illallah that's not ishtihad that's actually making an alliance and that's Allah, making an alliance with the shaitan himself and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will ask us about that how did you stand in front of those if they are bought it is your responsibility to actually not follow these ulama even if they are ulama the end of the day, remember, when we say, it is in order to remind us, Bani Israel, they were deluded by their ulama. The ulama were the ones that were deluding the masses. Don't necessarily be blinded. So in order to make sure that you're not blinded, you need to make sure that when you look at a alim, you see that one, their ability to have the taqwa to say what is haq walaw ala raqabatin. 
even if that meant their life. This is the alim that we need to follow, that they're willing to say what is haq. Our problem today is many of the Muslim activists not willing to say what is haq because they don't want to. They don't want to appear as if they, they are going against the, the westernization, the postmodernism, and appear that they are on the other side. Unfortunately, this is what we're facing today. In the name of diplomacy, in the name of fiqh al-da'wah, so under so many pretenses, we're actually seeing so-called scholars really selling Islam for cheap. And guess what happens at the end? They, they think that they might get acceptance. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells you, Period. There's no way that they will embrace you until you follow their faith. If you think that if you give up on this matter and that matter, that they will somehow embrace you, you're totally wrong. Don't yeah. give up on your deen. Don't give up on your principle, even if that meant, even if that meant that, even if that meant that you might get some acceptance, because in the end, you have lost your deen. You have lost your akhirah for the dunya. Too trivial. Too trivial. Wallahu al-musta'in. You know, it's 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 really sad. It's really sad to see that that. It's not just Palestine, but it's so many different, so many different issues that Muslims, and even Muslim scholars, they think that yeah, I'll I'll just say it in a way where it doesn't appear so straightforward against this, against this, um, against the the norm that is right now uh, being spread in 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 all over the world, really, such as the LGBT, etc. So you're seeing Muslims trying to use a diplomatic language rather than say what is haq straightforward. Say this is Islam. You are you don't change the religion of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala to gain acceptance. Say what is haq. Say what Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says. If you can't say what is haq, ya akhi, don't say what is batil. Don't say what is batil. If you're if you're afraid, I understand you might be afraid. I understand not all people have the power and, and the safety to say what is haq. If you can't say what is haq, don't say what's batil. Irtazil. Stay away. Work on writing. You don't have to appear in the media. You don't have to show up in the media. Irtazil. Stay in your home. Do your own dhikr. Say, Ya Rab, I don't know. I can't do more than this. And Irtazil. And stay in your home and do your own dhikr. Memorize Quran and work with your children and take care of your children. That's enough for you. If you can, but don't delude the masses. May Allah guide us to to see the truth as truth and and grant us righteous scholars as well. And um, before we go on to the next topic, actually, I realized that I uh, I didn't define the term ijtihad, but I wanted to ask you, Sheikh Aisha, to define it for us because I think that'll actually help us understand, you know, this what is the role of you know scholars in this area. Um, and in speaking about and giving even fatawa about politics, but could you explain the concept of ijtihad to us and um, to our listeners? So ijtihad, ijtihad is really, um, it's really putting the effort in deriving a ruling from the from the different uh, from the different musuls, in other words, from the different um, resources 
resources from the Quran, Sunnah, etc. And there are other other resources that Muslims go back to in order to derive a ruling, in order to set a ruling. And but you're doing two things. You're understanding the situation that is on ground, that is happening on ground, and at the same time, um, you're deriving from the the different resources, the different Islamic resources, you're deriving a ruling that matches number one the legal maxims in islam and the legal maxims in islam and of course the the principles of islam so in other words you're not basing an ishtihad based on your inclinations but you're basing ishtihad based on the principles in the quran and sunnah you're basing ishtihad based on the the guidelines of quran and sunnah you're not basing it on your opinion you're basing it on the guidelines and never is it part of the principle of islam never is part of the principle of islam to actually to actually um kill those that say how could you say to give a fatwa to give a fatwa to kill all these people to give a fatwa to kill a whole nation to give a fatwa to back up those that are actually that are actually facing all these injustices more than sixty thousand in egypt you want to give a fatwa that these people them home halal that their 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 life and to take away their life is actually permissible and what about the 12 million in syria and what about the what about the people in libya and what about the people in yemen yeah. you want to you want that, that's a that's not a fatwa that's that's a that's a collaboration with the that's a collaboration with the devil on the spot right there there's no other way to call it period because the hurmat dam al-muslim Hurmat dam al-Muslim is even the, the pre preserving and and protecting a Muslim's life is even more important than even having the Kaaba itself be demolished. Naqdiha hajaran hajara than actually the Kaaba itself being demolished one stone over another. Yeah, absolutely. Put nations. Imagine how many, how many what were we talking about? What? 25 million there we're talking about 90 million look at how many how many nations there there's there's no ishtihad this is not nothing but intikas i think subhanallah shaykh i mean i i i think i i'm i'm going to add a caveat here but i feel very frustrated at the fact that i even have to do that because Unfortunately, we live in a time now where people are always kind of just over scrutinizing what people are saying and sometimes not taking what is the essence of what they're saying and they're trying to quote them literally. But I know that you are not saying and none of us would say that the scholars who are saying some of these things, no one is denying that they are knowledgeable scholars, as you've said already. And no one is denying that in many areas, you know, we should obviously be uh, accepting of their expertise and accepting of their positions on certain issues. But as you very clearly outlined there comes a point when ulama take certain positions that does compromise them in our eyes and we can no longer you know consider their opinion on those issues as 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 legitimate where they have done as 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 you've you know very clearly expressed not something minor from but by justifying so the, these atrocities and and giving way to certain positions that really have no foundation in, in our scholarship and in our tradition and i think that that's just obviously important to highlight that it's not a case of writing people off but it's about you know this is as muslims as well we are supposed to advise and condemn 
that which is that that which is wrong stand up for the haq enjoin the good and forbid the evil and when even you know your brother is a, is committing an evil you should be the person to stand up and 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 correct them so there is absolutely nothing wrong with us with us highlighting that it doesn't you know it, it's not us condemning and writing them off altogether but i think it's really interesting what you're saying in terms of how these opinions affect so many people and so many countries around the world and you know obviously the whole geopolitics to get into all of that would take a much longer time than we've obviously got today but the fact that it affects so many more countries than just Palestine I think is obviously very evident but for me as well I personally see these changing dynamics and the positions taken by the UAE and then certain scholars and you mentioned the recent designation of the Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist organization as really part of the final phase of the war on terror where this movement by certain Muslim states to outlaw certain forms of Islam as unacceptable and political Islam as you know this is this is something that is not going to be tolerated makes it so much easier for then states in the West to do exactly the same thing who already have for almost 20 years now been trying to really define what is the kind of Islam that is acceptable in, in Western society that is compatible with British values, with American values, with French values, Republican values, as now they're trying to outline. Um, and, you know, I think, again, you mentioned earlier how you're not a part of any of these groups. And I think that this is really like the key issue, that it's not about any of us being a part of these groups. This is you know, we, we can all have agreements or disagreements with different groups of people. That's totally fine. What the issue that is really under discussion here is about a definition of Islam, a, a moderate Islam that the UAE has very openly stated they are trying to promote. Uh, and this is ultimately that this vision is of a secularized Islam, one in which Islam will exist as a religion in the private domain, but it doesn't actually feature much beyond that. And it will be flexible enough to you know, accommodate changing social norms and values. And the reason that political Islam is obviously easy as the first target is because political manifestations of Islam or any kind of Islam that talks about politics and recognizes that these two things are intrinsically linked, as you were mentioning earlier, you know, that, that directly contradicts any secularized understanding of Islam because it recognizes that this is a deen, this is a, a worldview, this is a way of life that defines more than just your personal private acts of worship. And this affects how you see yeah the world and societal governance and that is why this is the target right now once that has been banned though i am certain that we will see a clampdown on many other kinds of just public expressions of islam it is not going to stop at just being political it's going to be anything that contradicts uh the kind of mainstream secularized liberalized understanding um liberalized world that we live in today so i think it's really important that we don't get bogged down into oh well that group says this therefore you know it's okay that they're going to be banned or it's okay that you know people spoke against this because i don't agree with that it's the, this is really not about that and definitely as muslims in the west this is about foreign interference in in muslim communities there is evidence that the uae uh, has been communicating uae officials have been communicating with us policymakers us scholars in trying to promote uh, a moderate version of islam in identifying scholars that they say are going to be best at promoting certain views within the muslim community this is not something that we can just ignore or write off and say that it's, it's not a big deal it is a big deal and i think Alhamdulillah, you have really outlined exactly the significance of that for us as, as, as Muslims the world over. You know, I wrote a book. It's um, it's actually on Islam, the portrayal of Islam and Muslims in the neoconservatives media. 
the book is almost 500 pages. Um, in what in part of the book, in fact, uh, most of the book, um, it actually goes to see and scrutinize the different think tanks and what the think tanks are wanting of what the Islam um, that can be dealt with. What is the image or what does the Islam that can be dealt with? Or in other words, can have some political uh, some political talk, um, or at least some kind of a some kind of a collaboration with, and what does it look like? And it's really important to go back to two pieces. Number one is Rand, and the other, yeah. which is a think tank, and we're talking about, mm -hmm. you know, multi million dollar, multi million dollar think tank with over a thousand eighty people working in it. Now, here's mm -hmm. the thing is that that think tank actually had Cheryl Bernard working with them. Cheryl Bernard, who was um, married to um, Khalil Zalmadzei, who was, um, was actually an Afghan origin that was working as um, the, the correspondent, of course, for, um, for um, at the time it was, it was um, George W. Bush, but um, to make the story short, in where Cheryl Bernard in her in her book, Civil Democratic Islam, actually goes in detail to talk about how and what Muslims that she can that that the future um, that can be future allies, and she and she actually takes them into different categories, puts them into fundamentalist, traditionalist, and secular, and etc. And the ones that to make the story short. Um, anybody that considers and that their that the resource that they would turn to is is the Quran Sunnah, and that they would consider um, they would consider that that is that is our epistemological resource, our references in understanding the world. Then, therefore, these are going to be the fundamentalists. And that would actually include, and she did name them by the name. That would actually include. Um, all the different, all the different groups, and she did have a whole bunch of names. But it actually, it would actually include every single Muslim Muslim group, whether that was Salafi, whether that was, yeah. whether that was Ikhwan, or whether that was Sufi, or whether 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 that was Tabligh. But then the other group that she considered, yeah, we could deal with these people, are really the people that are. Um, reinterpreting the religion, so it maintains the name is there, but the the core of it is not there. The core of it is actually empty of the name or empty of the religion. Um, the the core of it is empty of the religion, and the core of it, uh, the core of it, is pro Western values. And to name some of those, she had actually mentioned. Uh, Another uh, other names that are very liberal names, and wanted to promote progressive Islam. To make the story short, where this progressive Islam is uh, um, is is pro um, drinking, pro Western values, pro Western identities, etc. And not only that, but in order, she laid out a strategy, and the straighted strategy to be laid out is. Um, to actually work on different Muslim worlds in different Muslim countries and to change the curriculum, to change the educational curriculums 
and by changing the educational curriculum, you there are to be replacing Islamic history to talking about the pre-Islamic history or the European history. From speaking about um, Arabic language to promoting um, foreign languages, promoting English, French, all those different things. From talking about um, the, the history of Islam, the history of the Sahaba, to actually talking about the pre-Islamic era and their history. Um, and and this, is, this is not me saying, but this is her strategy, her agenda. And guess what? The countries that they were actually involved in to changing their curriculum were UAE, Saudi, and Qatar as well. Not to mention, um, not to mention um, Egypt and all those countries, all those other countries. We already know about them. So, anyways, they're already they're already collaborating with those agencies and with those think tanks already. But yeah. those countries, um, those countries, we never would have thought that um, they would be a main target, but those countries were actually a main target in order to change not only Islam, but one of the main things is actually to change the curriculum to be pro-Israel. Yeah. yeah. To be pro-Israel, to change the whole curriculum, change the whole religious curriculum, whole history curriculum, Arabic curriculum. This is actually a think tank that is working and who opened the doors to help them do an so-called education system it is actually them is this really any different from what china is doing to the muslims in to the muslims in china absolutely not it's actually different because you know the the worst thing um you know when when uh, harriet tubman she said you know i would have freed more slaves if only they they believed and if only they knew that they were slaves and that's the same thing the worst slavery is when you don't realize you're, that you're actually a slave. You're the, the shekels, you don't even see them. That's the worst slavery. And that's the thing that we are living in right now. The worst, the worst occupation is the occupation of minds, is when you're letting a think tank, a think tank, a pro-Israel think tank, those think tanks, those think tanks, where American Enterprise Institute, for example, and Rand, a lot of the people that actually work there, a lot of the main, main people are actually soldiers and, and, um, and major lieutenants in the Israeli Defense Force. Now, if, when we're talking about Palestine, can we really separate? So what's the big idea? Why do they care about that? Because when we're talking about, when we're talking about Palestine, the whole changes that are actually happening is, again, what I started out, it's actually the story of Tawheed. Mm -hmm. It's the story of Islam. You can't separate it. It's the story of Islam. So when you talk about the think tanks and what they're doing, why care about the Muslim world? It's because it's a story of we don't want an Islamic uprising. We don't want any Muslim mind to go back to their, to their understanding of the religion and then we're facing here a Muslim group coming back to the religion. It's actually emptying a whole society, a whole, a whole um, continent, if you would want to say, from yeah. their identity called Islam, replacing it with a progressive Islam, with a progressive Islam, with a, an Islam that is empty of its name. Yeah. That is 
empty of its own identity. Now that's the story of not Palestine, but the story of Palestine is actually the story of of, a, of Saudi, is actually the story of Egypt, is actually the story of you as a Muslim in the West. So yeah. when we talk about Palestine, it's actually your story. It's not my story alone. It's not just my story as a Palestinian. It's actually your story because it's all about going back to the first square. It's all about, it's all about emptying Islam from the main settings of Islam, which is Islam itself. It's having Muslim people, let them be very pro to their nation. They can call themselves Syrian and be proud of their nationalist issue. Mm -hmm. And then just like they did with Palestine, it's just a Palestinian issue, not an Islamic issue. Now we can have these Muslims empty of Islam and now only talking about a national issue has nothing to do with Islam. Now we can deal with that world. Yeah. Now we can deal with a world empty of its own la ilaha illallah. Now we can have Saudi, Syrian, Egyptian, um, Tunisian, etc., Pakistani, Indian. Now we can deal with them. Now we don't have to have a unity. Mm -hmm. Story of Islam is about la ilaha illallah, all of it becoming a united ummah. In la ilaha illallah. That's the whole story of Palestine. Palestine is one of those stories. It's to help us. So when we talk about how did the story of Palestine go away, it actually went away because it was it was it was isolated in the story of a nationalism, but the story is really the same. You're just taking one segment of it. The story is the same. When we're talking about the Muslims in Kashmir, oh, don't talk about the Muslims in Kashmir because it's just their Kashmiri issue. It's just the land, you know, something India, etc. Don't talk about it there. But yeah. it's actually the same story. How do you want? How do you want to control the Muslims in Kashmir? Empty them from their Islam and let them be a national issue. What about mm-hmm. the story of Pakistan? Let them be a national issue. What about the Myanmar? Let them be a national issue. And that way you can then have this unity separated and not not become a principle or integrity and it becomes treason becomes an ishtihad this is our problem this is the story of palestine that this is a muslim issue this is not a national yeah. issue yeah. I hope yeah. I answered the question. Absolutely. SubhanAllah. I think you've said it just so well. And the fact that you're bringing in as well all of these examples, I mean, as you were talking about the the, the, the Rand Corporation, which, you know, its its policy reports are pretty infamous for the, the how bluntly they just express, I think, what are the underlying agendas of the government policy that we have been living through for the past 20 years. And SubhanAllah, we see it then. The, the, these agendas are not just confined to one or two organizations. They're everywhere. I mean, I know in the US, the, the Muslim Leadership Initiative, MLI, where they are taking Muslim leaders and imams to Israel is, as, as a bid to show, to, to normalize ties with them in the hope that they will come back and do that in the Muslim community in the US. That is a, a clear example of that. Here as well in the UK, we, um, similarly, as you quoted uh, from, from, from the RAND documents, their definition of signs of extremism to look out for include people who 
who believe in a transnational ummah and they feel that sense of unity and that bond with the rest of the ummah that's been specifically identified in, in UK policy papers, which includes, first of all, pretty much all Muslims, but secondly, shows very clearly that what they are targeting is that unity that Muslims feel because they want to prevent people falling back on that as opposed to their loyalties to the nation state, to the you know, British government or British values. They want that to be the defining mark of our identity, not unity based on Islam, which could give way for political demands based on Islam and, you know, upset the <laughs> world order as people would, would prefer to have it. But you've you talked about so many things and it's been an absolutely fascinating conversation, but obviously we are kind of coming towards the end now of, of our time with you. Um, and so I think I'd just like to return back to one of the points that you were making earlier, where you spoke about how subhanAllah, the, everything that is going on in the world today can be really difficult for us as viewers to, to, to watch and digest. And unfortunately, it's, it's turning many people away from uh, really having a deep understanding of these political issues because they've got compassion fatigue. And as somebody who used to work in that field, I 100% know what that feels like. And I have seen a huge difference in just my mental health since I've left that field where although I'm still aware of some things I'm not reading about it day in day out I'm not reading about I'm not reading the torture reports I'm not seeing the number of people that died overnight in a bombing I'm not looking at the pictures of people's injuries it's completely different but at the same time obviously that we have an Islamic responsibility to know what the ummah is going through obviously that's why Muhammad described us as as one body such that when one part of it hurts the whole the, the the whole rest of the body feels pain and restlessness so we have that obligation there how would is there anything that you would recommend for us as as, as viewers of, of, of all of this um to try and overcome that compassion fatigue and really if there's any kind of small efforts that we can make individually or in our community uh, to try and inshallah support the people of, of, of Palestine but also generally the ummah as a whole what they're going through so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says fa'lam annahu la ilaha illallah every change actually actually starts with awakening and awareness mm-hmm. and it is every person's duty to do whatever they can to bring about the awareness, to make the change. And every single person has a different responsibility based on their situation that they are in. You could be a teacher, you could be a mother, you could be a politician, you could be um, somebody that is in the economy, you could be a, a, a random person on the street. Every single person has a mission. And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had put it that after Al-Anbiya, after Al-Anbiya, it is left for you. It is left for the ulama and it is also left for you. If you can't find a leader to follow, you be the leader that you wish to find. I always say this. If you can't find a, you can't find a leader to take over the mission you be the leader and don't wait for the leaders to do the job. You be the leader to do the job. Whether it's to bring about the awareness or whether it's to take a, to take a mission, to, to do a change. Each and every single one of us needs to do one side of that role, one side of that mission. Every single one of us needs to, needs to feel the mission needs to feel the responsibility 
in order to carry on with the mission. If we don't, Sorry, if we don't collaborate as a whole ummah and we don't work together as a whole ummah, then we can't really do the job because we need all the powers. We need all the resources. If you are a, a rich person, well, donate to bring about those organizations to make the awareness. If you're a person of, if, if you're a person of that is outspoken, well, make sure you use your power to do that. If you're a munshid, well, make sure you do that. If you're a teacher, if you're if you're a politician, if you're a journalist, and no matter who you are, you will have to have some of your some of your um, powers and your energy to actually go for the sake of la ilaha illallah. To consider Palestine as an issue of Palestine is remember, it's actually a, it's actually um, misunderstanding the issue of what Palestine really means. Palestine, the whole story of Palestine, is really the story of the Ummah. To put it as if it's a Palestine issue and a national issue is an agenda. Be careful. Be a leader and don't be a follower. Abdullah ibn Mas'ud said, Be a scholar or a student of ilm, but don't be the third and get destructed. Yeah, I just wanted to add that, you know, we see this as a test for the Palestinians, but what if this is a test for us and how we are responding to the suffering of our Allah? Because despite the atrocities, like I know that these people will receive their justice and the tyrants will also say their end on the day of reckoning because you know Allah has not forgotten these people, but maybe we have. And with regards to compassion fatigue, I find viewing these issues primarily from a geopolitical lens can be quite detrimental to us as Muslims. Because you know, I personally find myself giving way too much power to worldly actors. You know, and I was so focused on like how one faction was stronger than another and who would come out on top. But you know, ultimately, even though the power in this world are powerless against Allah. But we do have to look at the state of our activism to understand why these people are, you know, why people have sought other avenues. Because I do generally believe the intentions are sincere, but people are just fed up of an activism that is, you know, it just feels quite fruitless because nothing has really changed. And, but you know, there are some people who only ever remember Palestine when it comes to like Zionists and blockbuster films, you know, just forgetting that whole industry has links to Zionism. And just, you know, things like Charlotte Thomas. And we are so easily appeased by public statements where like President Erdogan is calling the UAE out for their new relationship with Israel when you know there's literally a Turkish embassy in Tel Aviv and recently the Pakistani PM um, admitted that you know he's under pressure to recognize Israel and subhanAllah it's unfortunate that the people you know pressuring him are also other Muslim states but you know by the will of Allah you know this is still a Muslim issue Palestine is a Muslim issue and the Ummah is still very passionate about it and like my my Grandparents are politically illiterate, but they will fight for Palestine till the end because, you know, they see past this nation-state model and, you know, Jerusalem, for them, they see it as it is, you know, it is the Holy Land. And for the Pakistani PM, Imran Khan, to even approach this topic would be political suicide. And, you know, alhamdulillah for the people, alhamdulillah for our ummah. But, you know, this is a reminder for ourselves that, you know, if we have to engage with systems that are unethical, then is the power really worth it? Because maybe being weak and war-torn in this life is more honourable than attaining power at the expense, you know, of dignity and the rights of other Muslims. And, you know, like, in our frustration, how often do we even remember to sincerely pray for the Palestinians? 
So, you know, just assessing the activism and just the situation from this perspective will help us understand our own role and responsibilities because, you know, we are active participants. You know, yeah. um, and to prevent oppression on any in, in injustice on any person, whether that's a that's in Palestine or whether that's in Egypt or whether that's in Myanmar is all a Muslim is all a Muslim duty. And regardless, so if you are able to uplift the the oppression that is happening in Palestine and to expose, and this is really important, which is to expose the injustices that are happening in Palestine, whether it's taking away the land or whether it's taking away the water resources or whether it's building facts on ground or building the apartheid wall or whether it's or whether it's imprisonment and what happens in prisons, or whether it's taking away the tactics and taking away people's um, citizenship in order to um, in order to re remanufacture, rebuild facts on ground that it's actually a country with no with no residents, with no people in it, and that hey, now we have new facts on ground, which is that that we have um, these many millions of Israelis and and and, and trying to um, actually empty the land from from its residents this is this is actually part of a this is actually part of a muslim duty in exposing the injustices um exposing injustices is actually part of activism exposing the injustices whether what's happening in in gaza or or and or even the bombing etc is is one way to bring about the awareness um so let's not undermine that um, it's actually one way to bringing justice. It's actually one way. And yes, it is the story of Tawheed, but it's also, but the story of Tawheed is not separate from the story of, uh, from the story of justice as well. Um, it's not separated whatsoever because the story of Tawheed is, yes, it's in order to bring about the word of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but it's also the story of justice. It's also, you, you're not going to be able to speak about the story of justice unless you actually have a reference to knowing what justice is. So we know uh, we know that um, killing innocent innocent lives and innocent civilians in in Palestine or even in 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 different parts of the world is actually is actually a Muslim duty to um, to expose and to let as many um, as many know and have that, um, that 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 power because the more the more sentiments, the more people are feeling um, that this needs to change and that th this is an injustice. Um, people in general, um, regardless of where they are living, people in general, um, they have the fitra, they have the instinct to support justice. They have the instinct to support, um, to go against injustice and to support um, uh, to, to support um, justice. And, and, and therefore, it is actually important to work on exposing the injustices because when you it, it, when you're motivating the masses um, to see those injustices, then they will be more capable of of um, of uh, pressuring um, and, and bringing in those voices and um, and uniting voices in order to pressure the politicians, to pressure um, the policymakers, etc., to not 
give that support to Israel. So when we're talking about that, this is actually part of the activism. So let's not undermine it and think, you know, so why are we actually talking about the injustices? Let, let's just talk about the story of Tawheed. No, this is one way of doing it. This is one way of doing it. Speaking about justice is actually part of um, when we talk about the hadith and the Prophet said so in the end is that supporting supporting um, supporting a volume is just like we called it treason same thing when you're supporting when you're supporting it's actually defending haq, it's actually defending justice it's actually supporting um, supporting to bring justice um, to those that are that are oppressed, and this is actually part of Islam. This is part of Islam. This is not separate from Islam. But in order to understand, so the reason why I talked about all the different things that I had mentioned earlier is really to try to put in certain things in the picture. Um, and, and there's a difference between scrutinizing the picture and looking deep inside the picture and putting in a whole wide view of a picture. You need to see all the different sides of the picture. When you get too close to the picture, you may not see, um, you may not realize how things, the dynamics of how things are going. But you need to see up close and you need to see farther. All those different angles of looking at the picture are really important that way you won't get carried away and actually think that it's just a social justice issue and let's let's support a plo for it because hey after all are we really seeking a, a state for the palestinian people what kind of a state are we talking about are we talking about a, a secular state so if we're actually here supporting secularism in order to get another secularism do, do we really see the picture right? Mm. Did we really see the picture right? Are we really putting our perspectives in in place? If you know, if 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 we're here wanting to support the Palestinian Authority mm -hmm. and thinking that oh, at least you know they've got a Palestinian country, are you are you here putting the perspective? And are you are we here understanding the whole? the whole puzzle and putting the puzzle pieces together. If you put the wrong piece in the wrong place, the picture and the image is not going to be seen right. It's all together. Absolutely. And I think, Alhamdulillah, Dr. Aisha, it's been really, really great having you here today to do exactly what you just said in terms of considering different perspectives. Like I think the, the vast, not even the vast majority, all of the discussion on Palestine and activism for Palestine tends to be originating in this worldview that you're talking about, which is kind of just generally looking at it from a very nationalistic, secular perspective. And alhamdulillah, I feel like in this conversation, you've really managed to center Islam as the starting point from which we need to have this conversation. And obviously Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, ultimately at the end of it all. And I think that going forward, inshallah, you know, one way for us to avoid listening to things like this or, or seeing other other content that depresses us about Palestine or the state of the Ummah generally is to always keep that in mind because ultimately when we have full full yaqeen full conviction that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is control of everything and that this is his plan then we also remember that 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has told us in the Quran that victory is from none but Allah. And when we internalize that, then inshallah, that will keep us away from pursuing any pragmatic course of action that seems to kind of bring benefits at the, at, at the time, but actually contradicts the spirit of ultimately what we should be pursuing according to Islam, as you've outlined for us today. And I'm just, alhamdulillah, so, so grateful that you've Agree, that you agreed to come on and have this conversation with us because I feel like that perspective is not heard enough and we've really, really enjoyed having having you talk about that today. Yeah. I'm very proud of what you ladies are doing and bring in more women like you. for joining us. And yeah, I think that this has been, um, you know, like a reminder to us and also again ending with that point that not only is there something that each and every person can do but this is also part of the story of tawhid and the story of islam because that reminds us again that there you know there we do have real life examples in the example of the prophet sallallahu and in the companions what they did when they were faced with so many different examples of injustice of oppression not just in some faraway place but on their doorstep within their own households within their families and how they dealt with it so this is something that you know we will we will talk about it and we will also think about ourselves as actors in this in this story and we ask Allah to accept those actions from us and to guide us towards the truth um it's always make us people who are um speaking beneficially and if not to at least not speak about them and to not speak again like not to say anything that will ever harm um this cause or to harm the cause of islam um so again jazakallah khairan dr aisha to all of our listeners um make sure to keep in touch with the Qarawiyin project um we are continuing to post more um both like articles and podcast episodes alhamdulillah um and with that we will wrap up jazakumullah khairan wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh